Her tombstone listed no date of birth, no date of death, just her name and the names of the two husbands who preceded her in death. On her tombstone was a small epitaph that simply read, sleeps but rests not, loved but was loved not, tried to please but please not, died as she lived alone. At the age of 30, he had made his first million dollars. It seems like everything he touched turned to gold. He had family ties back to Wall Street. He had gone to Harvard for his undergraduate degree, Princeton for his master's degree, and then went to Yale to law school. And he became a partner in his firm at the age of 36, at which time his annual salary would be about $10 million with some other benefits. He stood in his his office overlooking Manhattan, just looking out the window, and he could see that picture of his wife and his two kids. And he just said, God, if only I could step out this window and end it because I am so tired. She was one of the top high school basketball players in the country. So many Division I schools wanted her not only because of her athletic prowess, but she was also an academic rock star. She was a leader on the court. She was a leader off the court. But what people didn't know is at nighttime, she'd come home and after an exhausting day, she'd be studying. She'd be looking at at film on the next opponent she's going to be going against on the basketball court. She'd go into her room and she'd lock the closet door, and pull out a box cutter and cut herself just to remind her that there's something more painful than the pressure that she's facing. Three people, three stories, all with one common thread. Have you ever considered that all of us here, no matter how broken we are or no matter how successful we are, all of us here have something that we need, something that's a common thread with all of us? If you get anything at all out of today's teaching, understand this and get this. We all have a thirsty soul. We all have a thirsty soul. And Jesus and only Jesus is the one who can fill that void, who can quench our soul thirst. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we head into the new year. And I started thinking about this sermon a while back because I started thinking about how we can just fill our lives with activities, things from activities to our careers, from religions and religious activities to a relationship or relationships. And what God placed on my heart today was to share with you a story, actually two stories, a story that I've preached on before, a story of an unnamed woman. She's known as the woman at the well from Samaria, a Samaritan woman. And the other is a religious Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. I've always preached these these two stories separately. That, That is until I read a great book by Timothy Keller. And he recommended that we look at the two stories together because there's that common thread of soul thirst in there. I will say too that I took several of my points from my sermon today from Dr. Keller, and I I wanna make sure I give credit where credit's due. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna hang out in John chapter four for most of the teaching today, then we're gonna switch over to John three. So turn to John chapter four, and I always wanna set the scene for what's going on because we have to go back and see where we are in history to whatever that story is in the Bible we're looking at. So go back 2,000 plus years. Jesus is born. We just celebrated that this past week. Fast forward again 30 years, three decades, and about 30 years later, Jesus comes down to the Jordan River, he's baptized, comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove, he's led into the desert to be tempted. 
And after that, after 40 days, he steps into what I call his earthly ministry. Our story today picks up in, in the first few months of his earthly ministry. Jesus and his disciples to go, decide to go from Judea to Galilee. It's a very long walk. That is unless they take a, a shortcut through Samaria. The shortcut will be, make it a three-day walk. They're about a day and a half in the walk. And our, our story picks up with Jesus at this well in Samaria. It's known as Jacob's well. It was dug by Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And it's a really, really deep well, like 250, 300 feet deep. Jesus is sitting there and he's thirsty. The disciples are off getting food. That's where our story picks up. John chapter four, let's look through verses seven through nine. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, the first thing we need to understand out of the hopper is that Jesus goes to outrageous lengths to reach us. He did it then, and he does it now. And what we see in this story is him stepping over several barriers that the culture and religion have put in between him and others. First of all, there's a gender barrier. Barrier. Jesus is a male. He's a, a Jewish male. He's a rabbi. Those three things mean in that culture and in that time, he would never speak to a Samaritan woman. In fact, if, if she would give him water and he'd take the water as a Jewish rabbi, he would be deemed unclean. So it's outrageous what he does. He crosses a gender barrier, a gender boundary. But he also crosses a moral and a social boundary. Because what we see and what we're going to find out is she's got a history. And there's a reason why it's the middle of the day. It's high noon. And she is coming by herself to get water. Because in that time, women would come as a pack. And they would, they would get water early in the morning. And, and the, the well's deep. And it would take several of them to pull up all the, all the jugs full of water. And then to take it back to their households. They do that in the morning. They do that at night before sundown. She's in the middle of the day. She's by herself because she's an outcast in her village. We're going to find out more about that in a second. There's a, a racial issue here. A racial boundary that Jesus crosses over. If you go back a few hundred years before Jesus, God had told the Jewish people that if you keep jacking things up, I'm going to send you off to, into exile, into slavery. And God is true to his word. So the Israel is divided into a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. And he sends the Israelites, the Jewish people, off into Babylon for 70 years. People of the northern kingdom, several of them stay behind. The people of Samaria. Samaria is the capital. And when they stay behind, they intermarry with the foreign occupation force. And what happens is the Jewish uh, people from the southern kingdom come back from Babylon. And when they arrive back, they find out that there's been this intermarrying. So they would look at the Samaritans as being half-breeds, as being treasonous. On top of that, there's a religious barrier. Because while the, the Jewish people were off in Babylon, the Samaritans not only interbred, but they also mixed Judaism with the pagan religions of the area and the pagan religion of the day of the foreign powers. And so they were looked upon as religious heretics. If you're going through Judea to Galilee, you would always bypass Samaria because you want nothing to do with those people, those Samaritans. Jesus crosses every one of those boundaries. He did it then and he does it now. He simply wants to get to know 
this woman and she can't figure out. She's trying to, she, she asks him, why are you a Jew asking me a Samaritan woman for a drink? Well, let's look at Jesus's answer, verses 10 through 14. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you've, you've got nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? That, that she means an ancestor who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, he's talking about the well water, will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Okay, so Jesus crosses all these barriers. She doesn't realize she has a spiritual thirst, that she has a spiritual need, and she's been going to a different well to fill that need. Jesus knows her needs. She can't quench her thirst without Jesus. And aren't we the same way? I don't know about you guys, but so many times in my life, I've said, my life will be complete if only fill in the blank for whatever that is. And we go to those places that we fill in the blank for to get our self-identity, to get our, our self-worth. For, we go to those places for acceptance, love, and grace, that, those places for a purpose in our lives. And we'll find out that those places are the wrong well. In fact, most of those places can be described as idols. It's the religious word for it. So I want to press pause on this story and I want to talk a little bit about idolatry because it plays directly into not only this story, but I think the story of our lives and for those of us, especially this time of year, who are just tired and worn out. So let's talk about idolatry. First of all, idolatry, it's when you look to anything to give you what only Jesus can give you. When you look to anything to give you anything, and they can be good things, but those good things can often replace the one thing. And they could compete for our soul thirst quenching. So let's talk about a handful of idols that not only I've dealt with, but I know a lot of you have dealt with. Um, let's start talking about people. We can look to people to quench our soul thirst. You know, if only I get that husband, if only I get that wife, or if only I get that perfect husband or perfect, uh, perfect wife, newsflash, there's no perfection with people. It just doesn't happen. If only I had that child, then my life would be complete. And we look to people for all of those things that Jesus t can give us, but people are always going to fail because we're, we're all made of this thing called skin, flesh, and we'll make mistakes no person can die for your sin, but he or she will compete with the one who did. No person can satisfy your soul thirst. So we throw ourselves into activity, activities, into to hobbies. Hobbies are great things. They're, they're a great stress relief. From video games to, to exercising at the gym, fishing, golf, whatever the case may be, even religious activities, church activities, those are, those are good things. But when we get our identity and our self-worth from those things, that's when it becomes an issue. When those places become escape routes for us to not look at what we really need to face in our lives, when we're running away from something, that's when they become an issue. Activities can't die for your sin. They'll only compete with the one who did. No activity can satisfy a soul thirst. One that's near and dear to my heart is, is careers, 
You know, we look at our professions and, and it's a good thing to have a job that you like. It's good to have a job that you throw yourself into. But here's the, the problem. There's a very, very fine line between having a solid work ethic and being a workaholic. And when we cross over that line to workaholism, it, we, we sacrifice our families, we, we, we fa- sacrifice our loved ones, we sacrifice our own lives at the altar of the office. No job, no job can die for your sins. It will always compete with the one who did. No job can truly satisfy your soul thirst. How about possessions? You know, if only I have that house, if I get that house, then everybody will know that I've made it. If I get that house, it's, it, it, things are gonna be well. If I get my Ford F-150 pickup that matches my wife's hair, man, then I will have made it. That's gonna be amazing. But the problem is, is the house has to be filled with stuff. And then the more stuff you get, you realize you need a bigger house. And the bigger house you get, the more stuff you need. And then you gotta get rid of that stuff. And your, your truck needs new tires in a few years. All of these things add up and it becomes just an ugly, vicious cycle. We can be envious of others. See, those things are good things in and of themselves, but they can't replace the one thing. No thing can die for your sins. It can only compete with the one who did. No thing can satisfy a soul thirst. We're stepping into 2020 and oh my goodness, presidential elections are coming up. Ugh, it can be so ugly this time of year or throughout the the election season. And what happens is we can take a, a political candidate and say he or she is going to fix everything. And we make that candidate a savior. Guys, politicians, all of them are made of skin and flesh. All of them are fallible. That means they make mistakes because they're like us. Some make more mistakes than others. And the thing is, we we put them on these pedestals and we say, if only they're elected, it's gonna be, it's gonna fix everything. Or we'll get behind a political party or a cause, a noble cause, a good cause. And and those noble causes and, and good causes like that are good things. But then what happens is we start looking down on others who don't believe the same as we do and we become very self righteous. And we can be pretty darn mean if we wanna. Be honest and admit admit it. No politician, no political party, no noble cause can die for your sins. And I will guarantee you that those things will compete with the one who did because they can't satisfy a soul thirst. Let me do one last one. Reputation. A reputation is what people say about you. And it's good to have a good reputation. We can work hard to have that good reputation to be men and women of character, honor, integrity, and faith. That's a good thing. But we live in a digital age, we live in a social media age where one false accusation against you and it can wreck you. And when we put everything into that reputation, whether it's being people pleasers, I know several of you are just completely exhausted right now because you're a people pleaser, it's Christmas and you gotta make sure everybody's happy. And that becomes almost an idol in and of itself. And when the idol implodes, guess what you get? Anxiety, stress, depression. Your reputation cannot die for your sins and it will compete with the one who did. All of these things, all of these things are idols. They're all idols and we build altars to them and we sacrifice our lives at them and and, and the lives of those around us at these altars. But no idol can quench your soul thirst. No idol can can quench your soul thirst and it will always compete with the only one who can, Jesus.
So notice all of these things I've talked about come from the outside in. So what I want us to do now is I want us to go back to the woman at the well because Jesus is talking to her and he wants her to have this thing called living water. What's living water? Living water is simply the gift of Jesus. Living water is the gift of Jesus. We go to these other wells for acceptance, for love, for grace, for peace, for a purpose, for mercy. And all of those wells can be stopped up because they're a well. And what Jesus offers is living water. Living water, it springs forth. You can't clog a spring, but you can clog a well. Every single one of us has a thirsty soul. We have a thirst at a soul level. And what Jesus tells us is this living water is as important to us spiritually as physical water or regular water is to us physically. Jesus basically says, if I'm not the one you're living for, everything will fail you and you will die of thirst. So let's look at the woman of the well. Look what she's been pursuing her, her whole life, verses 15 through 18. Remember, Jesus crosses that moral and social boundary. We find out now what it is. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. She's being very practical. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, well, you've correctly said I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you've said truly. Now notice how Jesus doesn't condemn her. He just convicts her. He speaks truth and love to her in a very gentle way. She doesn't, have a, she doesn't think she has an issue with soul thirst. And he says, oh yeah, go get your husband's. And what I love about it is he speaks truth and love in a gentle way. He doesn't say, let's talk about your sin. Uh, let's talk about damnation and licentiousness. Uh, he's, not, he's not saying, you've been playing the harlot. He doesn't say anything like that. He says, let's go get your husbands. He says, I don't know if you're up on current events, young lady, but you're coming here in the middle of the day. You're by yourself. Your village has shunned you. You're trying to fill yourself with something that is not going to truly fill you. How's that going for you? And what I love about this story is how much Jesus loves this woman. She is broken. She's in such a hard place all of her life. She's been given a bed, but never rest. She's been given a husband, but never a heart. She's given her love, but she's never received it from anyone in return. She's been given a religion, but she's never been given a relationship. All of her life, she's been drinking from the wrong well. She's been drinking from the wrong fountain, which poses a question for us. From what fountain are you drinking? From what fountain, from what well are you drinking? Where are you going for that acceptance, that love, that purpose in your life? Because all of those other places Jesus tells us are gonna be places in which we can't get our thirst quenched. If you're tired and weary in life, maybe it's time to look at the fountain or the well from which you're drinking. So we don't have time to finish the whole story. It's a great story, and I recommend that, that, that you take time this week to read the rest of the story. Let me conclude uh, this portion of, uh, of the teaching with a, a summary. So, uh, so Jesus and her keep on talking, and he admits to her 
that he's the Christ, he's the promised Messiah. And when that happens, she drops her jug and she runs to the village, the people who have shunned her, to tell them about Jesus. She says, come and see, I've met the Messiah. He knows everything about me, come on. So people come to Jesus and he stays in the village for a couple of days and people put their faith in Jesus. She becomes basically the first Christian missionary. But don't miss this. She leaves her jug at the well. That represents her past. She's walking from a time in which she's looked at other things, specifically men, to fill and quench her soul. And now she's got Jesus in her life. She has that living water and her soul thirst is quenched. And you may say, Kip, that's great, cool story. I'm not living an immoral lifestyle. I'm not living an immoral life. I got a good life. In fact, the life that I'm living, I'm a good person. I, I, I come to church. Um, I do good works. Well, maybe this next story will appeal to you and might speak into your heart. Now, remember our main thought, we all have a thirsty soul. So go back one chapter to John chapter three. Jesus is talking to a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a religious leader and he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. Let's look at the first two verses, John three verses one and two. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So let's talk about Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a very well-respected, influential, civic, and moral leader. He's a civic and religious leader. He's part of the Sanhedrin. That's the religious elite. If you would combine our Supreme Court and a little bit of Congress, those were the powers that the Sanhedrin had. To be in the Sanhedrin, you had to be older. You had to be a teacher. You had to be a scholar. You had to be extremely wise. You had to know the Mosaic law in the Old Testament like the back of your hand and be living uh, an impeccable life. But he comes to him in the middle of the night. Why is that? Uh, most, most biblical scholars speculate that, that, that he, he comes in the middle of the night because he doesn't want other Pharisees seeing him talking to Jesus, that he's humbling himself to come to Jesus to, to, to find out more about him. He's honestly seeking Jesus. Others, though, have said, a minority of scholars have said, well, no, he's not. He's coming to Jesus to set the record straight. He says, we know, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God. We, the Pharisees, know what you're doing. And if you're gonna play ball in our court, let me lay down some rules for you. Whichever the case may be, he comes to Jesus. And look what, how Jesus responds with Nicodemus coming to Jesus, verse three. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is established. He's a teacher of Israel. And Jesus isn't gentle like he is with the woman at the well. He goes right for the throat. You gotta be born again. Unless you're born again, you're not gonna see the kingdom of God. Go back 1,500 years and God hands Moses and the Jewish leadership the Mosaic law. And what they would do is they would add 600 or more man-made laws to those laws to where the people couldn't keep up. They couldn't they couldn't live by those laws. Jesus would refer to the Pharisees as hypocrites and blind guides and a brood of vipers. And he goes to the throat of Nicodemus and confronts him saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's talk about that phrase born again, because in our culture, it's got a lot of negative baggage. I mean, if you're at, at Starbucks and you order your orange mocha frappuccino, 
And you're talking to somebody there and they say, hey, tell me a little bit about yourself. And you say, I'm a born again Christian. They're gonna go, Jesus freak, weirdo. Goody twos, goody twos, goody goody two shoes. Don't drink, don't smoke. What do you do? <laughs> what kind of weirdo are you? We look at, at, at born again we, we think like a radical conversion experience. You know, I, I used to murder puppies, then I met Jesus, and now I run an abused home for abused puppies. That's a radical experience. We look at the, the drug addict who hits rock bottom, and he or she says, I've got to have Jesus in my life. And their life is turned around. That's a born-again experience. Those are radical experiences. Most of us have just regular experiences, but a lot of us have radical experiences. And those are good things. And those things don't negate the fact, it, the, the culture saying, saying that, wow, that's just kind of weird. But we gotta be born again. Jesus, it's a fact, he says it. He's speaking with the poster child of his time for morality and religion and says, all of those things that you're doing stacked up to the sky ain't gonna be enough. You've got to be born again. Let's keep on going, verses four through seven. Nicodemus is blown away by all this. And he says to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, that means unless you're cleansed and if, unless you're, you, you have a regeneration in your life, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, press pause for a second because Remember, our man Nicodemus is, is an Old Testament scholar. He knows it like the back of his hands. And when Jesus is talking about being born of water and born of the Spirit, he had to remember a, a few hundred years earlier, God speaking to this guy named Ezekiel. And he says, I'm gonna cleanse you with water and I'm gonna give you a new spirit. I'm gonna reach in and I'm gonna take out that heart of stone and I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh. He had to remember that. Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. He's talking about a physical birth. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's where he's talking about that rebirth, being born again. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. He's saying, you can't enter heaven by doing all these good works. Those are good things, but it's from the wrong well. And Nicodemus is blown away. How can this be? How can I enter my mom's womb as an old man? So then Jesus decides to mansplain it to him, or shall we say son of mansplain it to him. And over the next 14 verses, he's going to explain to him why he needs a savior. Let me summarize it with the Kipster International Version, or KIV. So Jesus is saying, Nick, dude, look, go back. You're a teacher of Israel and you don't get this? Come on, follow me, okay? Go back with me, back to when our people, because Jesus was Jewish, our people left Egypt. God got us out of Egypt. We got away from, from slavery and we're wandering in the desert. Our people are wandering in the desert and we're, we're on that true north, uh, true north uh, guide, lead. Everything is going well and then we mess it up. And what does God do? He slaps us in the head. He brings us back into line. And then we keep on messing up and he slaps us in the head. We mess up again and he sends a plague of poisonous snakes. Time out. That freaks me out. I hate snakes. Okay, back to the story. And he says, Moses, put that, that, that stick in the ground and put a bronze snake at the top of it. When the people look at the snake, they're gonna be healed. Don't you understand, Nicodemus, that points to me. You're a teacher of Israel and you don't get it. That points to me. I'm gonna go to the cross and I'm gonna take on the poison of this world. And I'm gonna die, I'm gonna be buried and resurrected and I will be a savior. You need me 
All these good works are good things, but you need me. But Nicholas, or Nicodemus, sorry, I'm still stuck on St. Nick Christmas. Nicodemus is looking at Jesus as a good rabbi. Folks, if we just look at, at, at Jesus as a good rabbi, we're going to walk right past him. Jesus says, you're going to the wrong place. You're going to the wrong well. You're a religious leader, but you don't need more religion and morality. You need a savior. You got to be born again. Timothy Keller said these words about born again. He says, it's not a call to more morality and religion, but a challenge to more morality and religion. Jesus is essentially saying that all of those things are good things, but they're not the one thing. They're from a different well. You've got to be born again. So let's talk about what it means to be born. News flash, none of us have anything to do with us being born. We don't. It, God creates, it comes from above. Okay, maybe our parents were creative. Maybe a little bit of Barry Manilow playing in the background. <laughs> Barry White, Taylor Swift, <laughs> Ethel Merman, y'all be swell for those sickos out there. Uh, you got your macaroni and cheese romantic dinner. You cut up the hot dog because it's a special night. And, and all of a sudden you're conceived. It comes from above. We have nothing to do with it. Being born again is the exact same way. We have nothing to do with it. It comes from above. Jesus is telling Nicodemus and he's telling us, no moral efforts you do can earn you a spiritual rebirth. You know, as pastors, it's really hard for us when we officiate funerals and we don't know the person and they just, we say, well, do they have a relationship with Jesus? Well, they were a good person. She was a good mom. And it's tough because they want us to preach them into heaven, but Jesus says, you gotta be born again. All the, you, you, you can be good, but that's not enough because none of us are good enough to stand in front of a holy God. He's talking to Nicodemus, the captain of the all-pro religious team. And he's saying, Nicodemus, Buddy, you're on the same playing field as tax collectors and prostitutes and Samaritans. Folks, for all of us, it's a level, a level playing field at the foot of the cross. It's a level playing field at the foot of the cross. No matter how broken you are or how amazing you are, when we stand in front of Jesus, that cross doesn't hide any of our sin. We're all the same. We're all broken. We just got to admit it. And what Jesus says is, I offer you living water. I offer you this rebirth. Look to me because even though you're all the same, I love you just the same. Back to Nicodemus. Let's look at Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Look at the two together. It, when you look at the two together, he's extremely moral. He's got the PhD in Old Testament studies. He knows the law by like the back of his hand. He's a poster child for, for Jewishness. And then you've got the woman at the well who's broken, shunned by her village, living every day in shame, saying, if only, if only. The woman at the well who's had five husbands, you know, the, the, the man-made laws that, that the, the Jewish leadership put together, the man-made laws said that if you get divorced more than three times. That's an issue if you're a woman. You can only get divorced three times as a woman according to the Jewish man-made laws. She should be taken out of her village according to the Mosaic law and, and stoned she and her live-in boyfriend. Yet in Jesus's eyes, they're both broken the same way because they both have a soul thirst. They have a need for Jesus. Both need eternal spiritual life 
and both are loved by Jesus. And that's the beauty of the stories. They're both loved by Jesus and they both need to be born again. That word again is very important. The Greek word is anathon. And what anathon means is that it comes from above. And the person that did it the first time, uh-oh, has to do it again. How cool is that? We have nothing to do with us being born. We have nothing to do with us being born again. All we have to do is say yes to the dress. It's that simple. Jesus goes to the cross for our sins. He's died, he's buried, he's resurrected. And now we get to live right, we're in right standing with God when we receive Jesus. And we can live right wisely. That's all we have to do. Romans 10 verse nine says that if we believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and we confess with our lips that God raised him from the dead, we're gonna be saved. It's that easy. But at Christmas time, what happens is we get so focused on a baby in a manger, we forget our need for a, a, a savior on a cross. Okay, so looking at this story, pulling back to the 30,000 foot level. I always like to do that, especially when, when you're looking at two stories together. It's great to pull back and see all the, the different points that are there. And I know if you did that, you guys would come up with like 25 different things. God laid two things on my heart to share in, the, in these last few minutes. First thing is, looking at both of them together, the woman at the well has like a three-minute conversation, and boom, she's convinced. This is Jesus. This is who I need in my life. She runs and tells the people of her village. Our man Nicodemus, he, he's only mentioned two more times in Scripture. And when he's mentioned those two times in Scripture, it looks as though he crosses the line of faith. It takes about three years. Three minutes versus three years. Then you got Ishmael here. I'm a little slow on the uptake. It took me three decades, 30 years of God slapping me in the head before I'd say yes to the dress. My point is this. Pastor Bob hit this hard last weekend. There's only one way to God. That's through Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But our timelines are a little bit different for each one of us. Because each one of us are on a different spiritual journey. That's not, I'm not saying we're on a different path to God. No, only Jesus is the only path. We're on a different spiritual journey to get to Jesus. Some of us, it happens like that. A lot of us, it takes years. And my point of that is this. If you have someone you've been praying for for years, don't give up. My grandmother, she, she was a hoot. on her knees every morning for 30 years, 30 years, don't give up. Because what's so beautiful is when you get Jesus in your life, he changes you. You love the unlovable. You forgive the unforgivable. He gives you that ability to see hope in a very, very dark world. That's thing one. Thing two, thing two is Jesus goes to the well and he meets this broken woman and he says basically two thirds, two words. He says, I thirst, I thirst. He's not gonna say that again until when? He's hanging on a cross. And when he's hanging on a cross, he says, I thirst. And there he's thirsting physically because he's been, had the living dog snot beaten out of him for several hours but also he thirsts physically because he's taking on the wrath of God. He's taking on all of our sin, past, present, and future because of his love for us, because he wants us to have hope. He wants us to have that future. And God does the unthinkable. 
he turns his back on Jesus. And Jesus is separated. That's why he screams, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he dies. And he's buried, but he's resurrected. And when he's resurrected, he gives us the ability now to be born again. He gives us the ability to have that living water to where our souls will finally be quenched and we'll stop going to all those wells that are just gonna be clogged up with this thing called life. So let me conclude with this. Let's go back to Nicodemus. Jesus has a great conversation with Nicodemus and about three-fourths of the way through the conversation, he says these words. John three sixteen. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. 25 words. Max Licato once said, if you're new to the Bible, go right to here. He also said, if you're an old hand at the Bible, go back to here. God loves. He gave. We believe and we live. We have that living water. We can take on the challenges of life, the darkness of the world, and celebrate the greatness of the world, all because of what Jesus did on the cross. Are you thirsty? Uh, Let me leave you guys with a challenge. Here's your challenge. Your challenge is very simple, and you've already written it down in your link. By this Wednesday, the 1st of January, I'd love for you to just pour a cup of coffee and sit with God and ask him, from which fountain I am drinking, am I drinking? Is it something other than you, Jesus? And I gotta, I gotta tell you guys, I, 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 I pra- try to practice what I preach. Um, and I did this, ooh, man, it was brutal. God showed me a couple wells that I've been drinking from that aren't good, that I need to shift my focus so my soul thirst is quenched day to day. From what well are you drinking? We all have a thirsty soul. Receive Jesus, be born again, and have that living water that'll help you walk in this world.